Everybody doing good? Happy Father's Day to you amazing superhero dads. I love that last clip when she said my dad's a superhero. That was precious. You all are superheroes, so happy Father's Day to you. Now be honest with me. How many of you actually ever read warning labels on the back of a product? Anybody? You actually spend time reading the fine print of all the things that could go wrong? Or like whether it's, you know, medicine, like, or maybe uh, the user agreement when you get an iPhone. How many of you all ever actually read that thing? Yeah, you all lie when you tell Apple, hey, this thing broke. And it's like, well, I didn't follow the user agreement. Oh, I read it. No, you didn't. <laughs> Warning labels. Have you ever wondered why they exist? Because people do. Specifically, people who ain't too bright. Right? If you really think about it, warning labels are always there because someone came before us It did something absolutely ridiculous. So I brought a few of my favorite ones. The first one, Jordan may not know what this is, but this is a hair dryer. Sorry. He wouldn't stand up for the Lowe's thing. He, I know you went to Lowe's like last night, right? Yeah, I know you did. It says, do not use while sleeping. I know you all trying to get the hashtag woke up this way look, but don't try that, all right? The next one, a rotary tool. It says on the warning label, this is not to be used in dentistry. <laughs> Mom, dad, when your kid has a toothache, that guy went to med school, you went to Lowe's. Just remember that. <laughs> the next one, spray deodorant. It says, do not spray this in your eyes. When someone says you gave them the stink eye, it just means change your face. It does not mean spray this in your eyes or anybody else's. The next one is called Popcorn Rocks, which this is a novelty rock garden set. But if we're being honest, they're asking for it, right? I mean, Popcorn Rocks, the first thing you're going to do is try to make a dimple on that, right? I mean, you're just going to pop it in, just try it. Someone broke their teeth on that thing. Next one, a one-year-old birthday card says not suitable for children under three. <laughs> Those of you who are shopping for a kid's birthday party, Target gift card for mom and dad. Kid won't remember this, so just bless the parents. Just side note for you. The next one, Lifesaver Mints. It says not for weight control. <laughs> you tried keto? Nothing. Atkins? Nothing. Exercise? Nothing. Next step? Lifesavers. <laughs> Steady diet of those bad boys. Next one. This is my favorite one. A child-sized Superman costume says, wearing of this garment does not enable you to fly. Josh actually found this out during VBS. He tried to jump from the balcony with a, with a cape on. Didn't work. <laughs> and then last one. A Boeing 757 says in the fine print on the plane itself, fragile, do not drop this. <laughs> so for those of you who are terrified to fly, now you know why. It's fragile. Do not get on a Boeing 757. They have better planes now. But man was not intended to fly, apparently. So those are fun, but the crazy thing is most of those we would never see unless we really looked at the fine print, right? We don't, if we turn the bottle around or if we look on the back of the packaging, otherwise we will never see this. Now there are other things, other warnings we get in life that are blatantly obvious, right? You have those things like this may cause death, 
For example, Katie and I used to go, before we had kids, we used to go whitewater rafting, and ever since we had kids, we're like, maybe not the best idea, because the warnings for whitewater rafting are very intense. Before you agree to buy tickets, you see a waiver, it says, you may die, and here's the amount of ways you could die, and it's like, one, two, three, four, five, like, okay, kind of getting depressed. Once you sign that, then you go get your tickets from the booth, and at the booth, they say, here's another waiver, here's the seven ways you could die. Like, okay, we'll still take the tickets. We get on the bus, and when you get on the bus, they're like, here's the 13 different ways you could die. They said seven, now it's 13. Like, this is very terrible. You might die on the bus itself. You like, I still want to do it. You get on the boat before the boat takes off the ramp. Like, hey, you may die doing this. We're like, yeah, but we're stupid. We're bold. Let's do it. Right? The, it's right there in front of us. I would love to say it's because we're that amazing. No, we're just, it was fun. But it was amazing. We still got on the boat. Warnings in life are not always that obvious, though. Sometimes they are. But let's be honest. Many times when the warning signs are right there in front of us, we still look at it and still choose to do the very thing that we know is going to bring us harm or destruction. This morning, we're going to see in the story of God's people, they were chasing after something that they desperately wanted. Even when God gave them a strong warning, they ignored the very warning he gave them. But what they did not know is that the very thing that they wanted, the thing that they desired, they already had perfected in God. This morning, what we want you to hear is when we choose to ignore the desires of God, we reject him and claim to know better. When we choose to ignore the desires of God, we reject him and claim to know better. So far in our series, Prophets, Priests, and Kings, we've been walking through the book of 1 Samuel. And we've seen so far the story of Hannah, Samuel, and also Eli, the story of humility that will get you much further than pride. Pride ultimately brings destruction. And then last week we saw that when we that we do not use God or his things for our will. God uses us for his will and his pleasure. But today in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, we're going to see a power struggle begin to take place. The people of God who were delivered out of Egypt, brought into a covenant with God, delivered in mighty ways by the hand of God time after time, they're going to begin to see their downfall. They're no longer in the wilderness. Now they're in the place that God had promised them. God was leading his way. He had provided for them the promised land. He provided for them food, water, leadership, victory after victory. Their forefathers, God had promised them, hey, one day a king will come. One day a king by my standards, by my timing, by my qualifications will come and lead you. But now things were getting different. Samuel, their prophet, their leader, the one who was shepherding him was getting up there in age. And he had two sons named Joel and Abijah, and they were not following his ways. They lived for dishonest lives, and they sought perverted forms of justice. So the people of Israel looked at Samuel and said, we have two issues with you. You are old. That's number one. Number two, your sons are kind of terrible. They're kind of bums. You're old. You got to get away. Your sons are kind of terrible. So, unlike most people who complain, they actually had a solution, right? They brought a solution to Samuel. And they said in verse 5 of chapter 8, now appoint a king to lead us. Now appoint a king to lead us. You are old and you can't do this job anymore. We need a king. And your kids should never have authority. Never give them keys to anything, let alone the Cadillac. Don't let them lead us. We don't want them. But why? Why now? Why do they want this now? They said, we want a king such as all the other nations have. Now, point to us a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. That's the true motivation. We want to be like everyone 
else. We want to be like everyone else. Samuel obviously feels despised. He was just insulted for being old and having terrible children. He was feeling old. He was feeling hated. He was feeling rejected. He took it personally. So he goes to God and he says, God, I don't know what to do. So he prays to God and God responds to him and says in verse 7, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. He says, Samuel, I understand why you're taking it personally. You've been their leader for them. You've been their shepherd. But honestly, they are not rejecting you. They are rejecting me. They are demanding from you what they already have perfected in me. They want someone who will lead them. I'm leading them. They want someone who will guide them. I'm guiding them. They want a king. I am their king. You can feel the heartbreak of God in the words. He goes on to say, since the moment that they left Egypt, he has been forsaken by his people, serving other gods. Like These are the people I led from captivity into the land of promise, but yet from day one they've been rejecting me. They've bowed down to idols crafted by pagan nations, even bowed down to idols that their very spiritual leaders created for them. They've rejected God. But what's the big deal? God did promise them that one day a king would come. See, back in the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with Jacob, God promised that a king would one day come from the tribe of Judah. One that would meet his standards, meet his qualifications, one that would be from his choosing. But it would come in his perfect timing, according to his standards, according to his qualifications. So God told Samuel to warn them of what would happen. And this warning is absolutely clear. This is a very clear warning label. Not once you have to look for, but once right there in front of them. He says, if you go down this path... If this is a path that you choose, if you truly want this king, it's going to lead to your destruction and the destruction of those around you. He will claim these things as his right as king. Before, God would be the one who'd go before you. God would be the one that would fight your battles. But since you want a king, he's going to take your sons and put them on the front line to fight the battles for him. Before, God was your king and sole authority. Yeah, sure, you had Moses. As a prophetic leader, you had Joshua as your military leader, but they were just in-betweens between you and God. They were just intermediaries. They were subordinate to God. But now you want a king who will rule and reign over you. Before, God was giving your people honor and dignity and identity, but this king will take your daughters and make them his servants in the palace. Before, God was giving you and your people land for you to dwell in, to build houses upon, to have farms to harvest. But this king will take that land for himself and take whatever he has on that land for yourself. Your servants and your workers will no longer work for you. They will now work for the king. The cattle you own will no longer be yours. The very first fruits that you used to give to God will now be claimed by this king. And worst of all, there will come a day when you will cry out for relief from the very king that you want. And when that day comes, it says, the Lord will, hear you, will not hear you. Like You will cry out and beg God, God, we don't like this guy anymore. I didn't vote for him. I don't want him anymore. And he's like, I won't hear you. The Lord, you rejected. Your true king, your true judge, your true leader will not hear your cry. So Samuel's like, how does this sound 
to you? Is this what you really want? And in verse 19, it says, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, we want a king. We want a king. You just said this guy will enslave us, tax us, take all of our possessions, take all of our land, take all of our daughters and our sons. Yeah, we want a king still. Oh, God's not going to listen to us? It's okay. We still want this king. Because everyone else has a king. It says in the text, so the Lord gave them what they wanted. Soon after this, we met a young man named Saul. And on the outside, Saul had everything going for him. He was a people's champion, worthy of the crown, rugged good looks, taller than everyone else. And while God provides the leader for his people, he gives them Saul, he continues to show his sovereign rule and reign. Because it's only by God's doing and by his sovereign rule and reign that Samuel and Saul meet and Samuel anoints him. But honestly, in the selection of Saul, God is showing them, this is what you want, so this is what I'm going to give you. He meets the qualifications of the world, that's what you want, that's fine, here's what you get. He's showing them the foolishness of their very heart. Because they were called to be set apart. God's special possession, his prized possession, set apart from the rest of the world. It's like, you want a king like everybody else? Here you go. Here's Saul. They wanted what the world had, so he gave them the king who qualified. From the beginning, things looked promising. We see some military victories. He beats the Amalekites. He beats the Philistines. He looked qualified according to what they thought. Yet he was not a good king. Nor was he even a good man. Honestly, a lot of 1 Samuel is a character study into how terrible Saul is. Now, from a distance, you and I, when we read this, one of the easy things we can do is jump in and condemn just how bad he is. Right? We look at him like, man, that guy is arrogant. He's prideful. The only reason why we can do this is we see the whole story. We see how the story ends. But yet, if you put ourselves in the position, that's the guy we want. We want this guy to lead us. We want this guy to be in the position of honor. And honestly, we are a lot like Saul. And next week, uh, Phil will spend more time talking about Saul, but what I'll summarize for you, Saul is very prideful, he's very arrogant, and the worst thing is he's absolutely blind to those two realities. He has no idea he is arrogant and prideful. And just like the people of God, Saul chooses to ignore the desires of God, and by doing so, he rejects God and claims to know better. Something deep inside of us understands this, because deep inside of us is the very desire to rebel. It has been there since the story of Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve had one simple command, right? Don't eat that. Really? We're going to break that one? So don't eat that. And what do they do? They're like, God, you don't really know what's best for us. We're going to take this because we know it's better for ourselves. So we take this one thing, one simple command, one blatantly obvious warning label that we may die, but that's not really what you mean. Don't eat this. Yet once a serpent came in and deceived the couple, they rejected God, and they thought they knew it was better for them. And because of that, we see a pattern. For they believed that a good God would never withhold anything good from his people. They believed the lies of the serpent and questioned his goodness and his character and the realities of his promise. They chose something else over God. They rejected God and claimed to know better. And ever since that moment, humanity, you and I, we have followed suit. 
When God said, go and fill the earth, what they do? They stayed in one place and built a giant tower. The exact opposite of what he told them to do. When God said, take the land, they came back in fear and trembling. When God said, have no other gods, they bowed down and worshiped idols. When God said, seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with him, they oppressed the foreigner. They abandoned the marginalized, and they idolized their own self-righteousness. And then 2,000 years later, 2,000 years later, a humble servant came riding into town on a donkey. A traveling rabbi with a very large following with a beautiful message of a new kingdom that had come. He came into the city under the praise and the glory of people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they soon realized that this is not the king that we want. This is not the king that we think we deserve. They wanted a king who would come and liberate them from the oppression of Rome. They wanted a king who would come and bring back the glory of Israel and bring them back into a land of prosperity and of goodness. They wanted a king who would ride in his town on a, on a great steed, not one who's coming in on a donkey. Wait, why is he being silent? Why is he not fighting back? Why is he not calling out Rome? Why is he not calling out all their sin? Why is he doing these things? And so in one breath they yell, Hosanna, and the very next breath, what do they scream? Crucify him. They thought for a second, no, 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 that's not what we deserve. We deserve a better king. We deserve something better for us. We know what we want. We want a king like the world has. We want someone like Caesar. He is powerful and you are weak because he's killing you. They thought that they knew what was better for them. They rejected the Savior of the world, God in flesh, and claimed to know what was better for their lives. This pattern continues with you and I today, right? We have the very word of God, the very breath of God living and active on a page, and it reveals the very heart of God and reveals his desires and his wills for you and for me to flourish. In this book, we have life, and we see the story of salvation, the story of God becoming flesh to take upon himself a punishment that you and I deserve so that we could be with him. In this book, we see the command to rid ourselves of sins that hinder us. Like it was in the beginning, there is a very blatantly obvious warning label right in front of us, right? Choose him, we have life. Choose anything else and give it godlike status, godlike weight, and all we have is death. Yet the rebellious desires within us lead us to say, but we want to be like everyone else. I want what they have. God, you're not delivering me what I want. God, my desires are mine, and you're telling me that they're not good. I want to be like everyone else. And like the people of God heard from Samuel, we are warned, hey, the sin we are pursuing, the sin that we are entangled with, it's going to enslave us. It's going to enslave us. The sin that we refuse to repent, it's going to bring death. It's going to bring separation. It's going to bring destruction. It's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt others. It's going to hurt the world. The path that we are on, it's not going to end well for you. It's not going to end well for me. The relationship that we desire more than anything else, the thing that you think you need in life to bring you wholeness and completion, will not. The temptation you think will satisfy you, 
Maybe for a moment it will. But immediately afterwards, all you walk away with is guilt and shame. The God you are choosing over the God who created you will not bring you salvation or wholeness. And each time we choose that God, each time we choose ourselves, we choose those things, we reject him and claim to know better. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God, there is still hope. Because in God, we have everything we need. Amen? Oh. In God, we have everything we need. Amen? Amen. Come on. It's not God plus anything. It's God plus nothing. It's just God. God gave us what we needed. God gave us Jesus. God gave us salvation. God gave us mercy. God gave us love. We don't need anything else. I don't care what everyone else has. I want to have Jesus. Amen? Amen. We don't want all these other things. I know that others have leaders. Other things have hope. But no, no, we have pure hope in Jesus. And the best part is, what did he tell the people of God back in Israel? When you come to him, when you cry out to him for relief, he will not hear you. But God sent Jesus so that we could come to him and cry out to him and have that relief. And that relief is eternity with him. We can cry out to God from the very things that we have said. We choose these things over him. I've chosen my sin. I've chosen my rebellion. I've chosen death. I've chosen my relationships. I've chosen my temptations. But now, God, I see what they, what they really are. I see that they're not bringing me satisfaction. They're not bringing me wholeness. They're not doing anything except bringing me death. So, God, I cry out to you and ask that you do something. And I tell you today, he has already done everything you need. He has done everything you need in the person of Jesus. In God, we have everything that we need. Everything we need is in him. But still, we have to ask ourselves the difficult questions this morning. The difficult questions of where are we choosing to ignore the desires of God? Where are you choosing to ignore the desires of God? You see what God has designed for you. You see what God has designed for your life, what God has designed for your purpose in this life. Where are you choosing those because you say, God, I see what you desire, I hear what you say, I see what it says in your word, but God, this is what my desire tells me. And we believe that our desires are more important than his. The second question, where are we rejecting him and claiming to know better? God, I see what you said 2,000 years ago, but ain't that a little outdated? God, hasn't your time passed? Aren't we a little bit more evolved as a society? Don't we know things better than what you did a long time ago? Didn't those people not know anything? A little archaic back then? We choose to ignore his desires. We reject him. And we claim to know better. We claim in our finite beings to know what an infinite being doesn't know. It's amazing how quickly we put ourselves in the position of God. So this morning, I'm going to challenge us to see that in God, we have everything we need. So I want you to bow your heads and spend time in time of confession and time of prayer. See, the Apostle Paul was another man who knew this struggle. He knew that this struggle was not just a struggle for a few, but this would be a struggle for all people of all time. 
When he wrote the letter to the church in Rome, he, he saw that these people said they knew God, but they did not live like it. They said they followed Jesus, but yet their actions proved otherwise. So it says in the text, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of, of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being. In a very harsh reality, but as a good father, it says, therefore God gave them over to sinful desires. They desired those things of their heart, the sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served and created things rather than the creator himself. Because of this, it says, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations with another woman. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and shamed them with men. Verse 28, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding of fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but also approve those who practice them. The people of God who knew God, who knew his voice, who knew the Savior, his son Jesus, they chose to ignore the desires of God. They rejected him and claimed to know better. So this morning we must ask the question, is that your story? For some, and maybe it is, there's a habit or an addiction you just can't break. Not because you don't have the power to do so, but because you love and you desire what it gives you. Maybe for you it's a secret life that you live. One that's pure in the eyes of all around you. You have favor with everybody, but if they ever saw what you were doing in secret, they would be ashamed. You're living a double life. Maybe you have traded away your pursuit of holiness for the pursuit of arrogance and pride. And the worst thing is you don't even know you are arrogant and pride. Maybe for you, for a brief moment on the Lord's day, your mouth is full of praise and honor. But from the same fountain comes slander, dishonor, hatred, and wickedness. Or maybe you love to call out the sins of everyone else around you. You love that list that we just read in Romans 1. You love pointing out everyone else's flaws. But if you really took the time to sit in God's word, to be convicted by his Holy Spirit, you too would see that you too need to submit your desires and your will to the same Savior. Don't expect everyone else's sins to be submitted to God. 
and not be willing to do it yourself. Maybe you want Jesus in your life, but honestly, you don't really want him Lord over your life. Let me tell you this morning, sin will remain in control over you as long as you choose that sin over Jesus. That sin is only going to deliver pain to you, pain to those around you, and lead you down a path that you do not want to go. Maybe there's another group of people in here, some of you, you still don't know much about Jesus. You've not yet made the decision to follow him and choose him. For you, when you heard about Jesus, the church, Christianity, it sounded much like good news for a moment. Then maybe a church gave you a bad taste for it. Maybe the, the, the people in your life who were said to be followers of Jesus showed you that they really weren't. I want to apologize to you. I want to apologize to you because we Christians can sometimes make it difficult for those who are coming to Jesus. And we believe in a God who is calling people to himself. And as believers, sometimes we get in the way. We make it difficult for you. We try to hold you up to a standard that we don't even meet. But I want to tell you this morning that the good news of Jesus is good news, not just for those of us who claim to follow it. It is good news for everyone. The good news is this, that you were made in the image of God. You deserve honor, love, dignity, and respect. The bad news is, is that image that you were created in has been tarnished by this thing that we call sin. The sin that we carry and live with is blocking out the voice of God and it's separating us from Him. And for thousands of years, humanity has tried to figure it out. How do we get away from this thing? How do we get to God? But all, all we see is that the standard was so high for us that we could not reach it. We could not bridge the gap between us and God. We needed a Savior who would come down and bridge that gap. Not another king, not another leader, not another prophet, not another political leader, but one who has the ability to fulfill all that we could not. We needed God himself, so he came in the person of Jesus, God in flesh, the exact representation of the glory of God. He came in humility. He came in love and mercy. He knew what was necessary for us to have life. He knew what was necessary, and it was that he would have to lay down his life so we could take up ours. He would have to give up his breath so his very spirit and breath would enter into our lungs. That's the good news. He did all that so that we could have life, and more importantly, life with him for eternity. And he desires that we choose him. He desires that we choose his desires, his will, because Jesus simply knows better. He knows so much better. So I pray today is the day you take hold of him. Take hold of that good news because it will bring you life. So God, this morning we, we come before you, we lay aside our burdens, the things that have been hindering us, the things that are entangling us, the things that we still choose to allow to enslave us. 
God, we want to be free. And God, you've done everything already for us to be free. God, you have paid the price. You've paid the penalty for our sin. Thank you, Jesus. And so for those here today, if you say, I want to choose to follow Jesus, I pray that you write down your connect card. Come talk to a pastor. Come talk to me or Josh after the service. We'd love to chat with you. You're like, maybe I've never chosen that, I've never chosen that moment in life. Make today that day. Maybe you have followed Jesus, but you never told the world that you have. You've never shown the world that you have chosen to follow Jesus by entering the waters of baptism. I'd love to talk to you about that as well. The message of Jesus is good news for you. The message of Jesus is good news for all people. Do you believe in that good news? Jesus has done everything we need to have life and life with him. Would you stand as we sing and close out and worship?